a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Now, this is a place where you should feel fairly comfortable as far as you're not going to feel personally attacked. I'm not here to tell you how stupid you are and how smart I am. I'm not here to laugh at your expense. But I'm also going to warn you that uh, this program has a tendency to, to face some uncomfortable truths and go places where other people may not dare to go. Uh, the difference is I try to do it in such a way that I'm, I'm trying to encourage you to think clearly, think independently, disagree with me if that's what it takes. I welcome it. But more importantly than, uh, you know, than showering me with accolades of, oh, you are so good at this. You, you know exactly what you're talking about. Look, I'm not the one with the answers, but I have access to a lot of really great sources of information. And my goal on a daily basis is to share those with you and hopefully make a little bit better sense of the world around us. So with that in mind, let's get things started. Thanks again for joining us. I have some great sponsors I'd like to thank, including Dixie Chiropractic. You can find them at DixieChiro.com, HSLAmmo.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, also MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and last but not least, GovernYourCrypto.com. So we've got a lot of fun stuff to cover today. In fact, Caleb Franz will be joining me in the next segment of the show. I hope you'll stick around to hear him talk a little bit about our Liberty in Action segment. But uh, I wanted to start with something about the, the protests outside the home of Supreme Court justices. And look, I'm not trying to be cruel when I say this, but uh, to, to those on the left who are out there protesting outside of the homes of uh, Justice Amy Comey Barrett, I, I'm sorry, I, 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 this is how closely I follow the Supreme Court. I, I couldn't tell you a lot of their names specifically. Get a better metaphor than, than a handmaid's tale. I mean, I get it, you know, oh, yes, well, we're just going to turn it back and women are going to become nothing more than, than baby factories to this patriarchy. And please, please, this, I mean, you, you're not only are you becoming a threadbare cliche, but, uh, you know, there's also the question of, you know, how, how legal are these protests? I mean, there's, there's some very specific federal code that says you shouldn't be able to do this. Now, I might surprise you. I'm going to confess, I think it's actually not a bad idea for people to be able to peacefully protest, even if that just means standing there holding a sign or something. I think that they should be able to peacefully protest even outside the residences of government officials. Now, the problem is you get enough people gathered, and I'm not trying to cast aspersions here, but you get enough left-wing people gathered, somebody's going to want to start a riot, or at least that seems to be the pattern that I've picked up on over the last year or so. Something isn't going our way? Well, let's burn this thing to the ground. You know, that's, that's the approach some people are going to take. One thing is for sure, and that is the protests outside the homes of these Supreme Court justices, is uh, it's teaching us more than just society's attitudes on abortion. In fact, I've got a great article here from Thomas L. Knapp. Some animals are more equal than others when it comes to privacy. Thomas Knapp says on May 9th, The Hill reports the U.S. Senate passed with unanimous consent a bill to formally allow the Supreme Court of the United States police 
to provide protection, around-the-clock protection, rather, to the justices, family members in, in line with the security that some executive and congressional officials get. Now, while sponsor John Cornyn of Texas justified the action on the alleged threats to the physical safety of the Supreme Court justices and their families, the real reason for the bill is no secret. In the wake of a leaked draft opinion that would overturn Roe v. Wade, ordinary Americans started showing up to protest outside the justices' homes, queuing immediate howls about the sanctity of their privacy. And he says, wait, what? Even if one considers the interests of unborn children more important than privacy, there's no question that privacy would be a casualty of the ruling. It would allow state legislatures to ignore privacy in at least two areas, women's uteri and doctor-patient relationships. Now, if these areas of privacy are less important than the sanctity of life in the eyes of abortion opponents, then he says, how is the privacy of Supreme Court justices and their families more important than, as the First Amendment puts it, the right of the people to peaceably assemble, sorry, peaceably to assemble, and to petition the government for a redress of grievances? Well, the Constitution itself doesn't answer that question. So to find out what we need, he says, instead we have to turn to George Orwell's novel, Animal Farm, and the modified version of its utopian scheme's Seventh Commandment. All animals are created equal, but some animals are more equal than others. So your right to protest the actions of very special, important people like Supreme Court justices is subordinate to their rights not to be annoyed, embarrassed, or even in the slightest manner inconvenienced by such protests. Now, I know there are a few people scratching their heads, and this here's where Thomas Knapp comes, he brings it back home. It says, now, if you thought you were reading a column about abortion, you thought wrong. In fact, for that matter, if you thought you were reading a column about privacy, you thought wrong. You're reading a column about equality under the law. This little teacup tempest is just the latest in a long list of demonstrations that no such thing exists. He says, since the 1980s, America's very special important people, a.k.a. the political class, have availed themselves of a fiction referred to as free speech zones. They go where they please and they say what they wish, but mere mortals like you are restricted to saying what you wish in locations far removed from them. Now, some states have even passed laws forbidding disclosure of the addresses of very special, important people, politicians, judges, police officers, to the mere serfs who fork over those very special, important people's salaries for the privilege of doing as those very special, important people demand. They get to run your life down to the smallest detail, barge into that life at will, and cage or kill you if you resist. So, you get to complain about it for now, Anyway, as long as you do so in places where they won't notice and pronounce themselves offended by your gall and temerity. Ouch. That's, that's going to leave a mark, but I think he's right. There's a good lesson to draw from that. And by the way, I still remember the free speech zones that uh, the Bureau of Land Management set up eight years ago when it was trying to rustle the Bundy family's cattle. No, they legitimately, they shut down every, uh, they, they shut down every road path tire track out there in the desert in Nevada. And then they set up what they called a free speech zone. Literally a little enclosure. Maybe as big as you could uh, raise a couple of pigs in if you, if you were so inclined. And it was way out in the middle of nowhere. Here's where you guys have a free speech zone you can set up and you can protest there. 
and then they very actively enforced it. Meaning if people so much as set foot off the main road and onto one of those dirt roads, you'd have guys uh, come rushing up with rifles at the ready to either arrest you or harass you or threaten you until you, you know, went to where your free speech was approved. Okay, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to glorify protest, but I am trying to make the point there are times where it's necessary for people to stand up. And, I, and I'm going to emphasize peacefully, assemble, and to petition their leaders for a redress of grievances. One of the reasons why a lot of people showed up at Bundy Ranch from all points of the country was because they saw the pictures of those free speech zones. They saw the pictures of, you know, marksmen, snipers, pointing in on people with spotters right there by their side, unarmed people just standing there, you know, taking pictures with their phone or filming with their iPad or whatever the case may be. Yeah, the double standard here is is pretty apparent. And I'm not suggesting that we should all be out there, you know, every day making their lives hell. But I think that there has to be some accountability. And, you know, when you see public officials being very carefully sequestered away from the public and put in gated communities and surrounded by around-the-clock security, at some point, don't you want to at least ask the question, why, what are they doing that, that runs the possibility of making people murderously angry? I don't know how you would answer that question, but uh, I think as as Thomas Knapp points out, if they're exerting that uh, ability to run your life down to the smallest detail, barge into your life at will, and then cage you or kill you if you resist, if you don't do what they tell you, yeah, that's that's a pretty big deal. So, I support peaceful protest. I do not support non-peaceful protest. Still trying to trying to make my mind up about, uh, you know, I mean, it, there are people who say, well, Brian, what they're trying to do here is they're trying to sway the justices before this ruling is released. And I think that's probably, you know, an intimidation is wrong, too. But for some reason, the left seems to get a pass on this. Well, you know, if I just the fact that I'm saying what I'm saying, it's probably enough to land me on a list if I'm not there already. Ah, well, such is life in our fallen world. We're going to take a little brighter look at uh, one of the more important cartoons of history when we come back. Caleb Franz from the Profiles in Liberty podcast will be joining me. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Happy to welcome Caleb Franz, the host of Profiles in Liberty podcast, back to my program. It's, yes, it's time for another trip down memory lane. I'm sorry, history lane, Caleb. Um, What are we going to talk about today? Well, thanks for uh, having me back on, Brian. Uh, This week, um, on May 9th, so it's it's a little bit past uh, that time, but uh, on May 9th is the anniversary of one of the um, most uh, popular and uh, most influential political cartoons um, in American history. And, you know, some of you may listening 
may be like, well, that's that's kind of an odd topic, but uh, it's actually the uh, Join or Die cartoon that uh, Benjamin Franklin had allegedly put together. Um, and this this cartoon is something that I think really just defines not only the idea uh, behind America properly, but also I, I think it, it really transcends it. It's not just a political cartoon uh, for the sake of being a political cartoon. Um, this was really the moment when, uh, whenever uh, Benjamin Franklin put it together, uh, that uh, the first proposal for a unified uh, at the time, the unified colonies uh, to to really stand as as one front against a common foe or a common threat. Uh, that was the first time that it had really officially been proposed, um, and I think there's there's a lot of similarities and a lot of inspiration that we can learn from it uh, today as well. So, describe the cartoon for us. I'm sure people are going to recognize it once you start to describe it. But join or die. I mean, that almost sounds like an ultimatum, but really, it was something a little more. Uh, there was a little more nuance to it. Yeah, so uh, I'm sure many of many of the listeners uh, listening here are very familiar with this uh, cartoon. You have the uh, snake that is all chopped up into several pieces uh, with the phrase "join or die" underneath it, and each piece of the snake is representing uh, one of the colonies. Uh, except for when you get to New England, he he just uh, sort of encompassed all of New England into into the head of the snake. <laughs> Uh, and for for this, it wasn't necessarily um, it wasn't necessarily a threat, as you alluded to, as much as it was a warning. If we don't unite against a common threat, uh, at the time it was actually not the British but the French that they were uniting against, because this was during uh, during the Seven Years' War, uh, the French and Indian War, when they were uh, presenting a threat on the frontier. Um, but it became uh, a symbol. More than just uniting against the French, it became a symbol of unification on common principles. Um, unification, not centralization. And that, I think, is an important distinction. Um, it wasn't just one snake. These were all uh, very different colonies with very different interests and very different uh, purposes. Uh, and that really represents the, the spirit of American federalism, I believe. Whereas we all have these different pursuits and these different interests, but it's against the the common the commonality of of protecting the ideas of liberty that can unite us all, and that's the sort of the intention. Uh, at least that's what he evolved into uh, over over the years, and and continues to do so to this day. Yeah, I, I mean, look, one of my favorite flags right now is the Gadsden flag. You know, the rattlesnake, mm-hmm. "Don't tread mm-hmm. on me," which. I think it's just it's a perfectly natural warning of, hey, I'll mind my own business, but you step on me, we're going to have a problem. Um, I, how, so, so what was the year that this was published, the Join or Die? The Seven Years' War? Help me place that. Yeah, this was, was that? This, was, uh, this was in 1754. Wow. Um, Benjamin Franklin had actually been inspired by the Iroquois Confederacy. Um, and he was amazed by how all these different nations of, of, of Indians uh, could go off and, and basically live their own lives and, and do their own things. But when there was a commonality um, and uh, for, for the Indians, it was often, you know, warring tribes or, or uh, even like uh, settlers uh, encroaching uh, upon them um, for, for obviously for, for Franklin and the colonists, uh, that common enemy was the French. Uh, but the, the point of this was because a lot of the colonies were very, 
um, very self-interested and were very uh, pursuing their own uh, self-interests, which is very natural. Um, so Franklin tried to use that own self-interest as, as a cause for unification rather than, uh, rather than division. Nice. Now, was it well received, or was this uh, was this perceived as a very radical cartoon? I guess that would depend on who you asked, right? The French would look at it and say, "Ah, oh, <laughs> disgusting." Yeah, yeah, it, it was well, uh, very well received, and and this was something that um, it, it obviously the the symbolism of it that we know it to be today is much more tied to uh, that of the American Revolution. Uh, and there were a lot of different uh, iterations or different versions that eventually spurred out of, of this symbol. Uh, throughout the American Revolution, the Sons of Liberty sort of incorporated it um, uh, into their, their own version with uh, Unite or Die, but very similar, uh, you know, very similar outline, very similar structure. Uh, the symbolism of the snake was also um, very prominent in, in that uh, image as well. Um, and for a lot of colonists, this was basically what the American idea was supposed to be about. And, and it, it would eventually go on to inspire the, the system of, of federalism that we now enjoy to this day, uh, whereas everyone is, is left alone to their own devices. Um, and there are those certain uh, truths or there are those certain principles that can that can really bring us all together. I love it. And it's it's fun to to be able to trace the the roots of federalism, you know, clear back beyond just you know the the war for independence and and uh, the years immediately following that, the founding period. Is there anything in our day that uh, that can compare to the, this political cartoon and and the kind of impact that it had? Do you see any kind of media source that is is as iconic as as that uh, particular cartoon? I don't know if there's any that is is quite as uh, as iconic today. Um, perhaps perhaps you have a, a better idea than than I do on that front. But I really think that this uh, this image in particular really encompasses um, sort of the spirit of, of, of what it means to be uh, an American. Uh, and you know Benjamin Franklin in particular, it encompasses his philosophy of of what america was was meant to be because you know franklin was very community focused he was very community oriented he was someone who believed that liberty could only really be protected if it was uh, organic if it was from the ground up if you did yep. get uh the members of your community and your and your fellow countrymen if you can get them to have some skin in the game that's the best way that that liberty is is going to be preserved and it's, and it's not going to go anywhere and i think this symbolism this cartoon the the first uh, cartoon showcasing american uh, american unification um again not centralization which is you know a very very different uh, concept that's not necessarily what he was trying to get at but to, to unite around these commonalities and these common ideas um i think that best encompassed Franklin's vision for America, and I think it certainly uh, is 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 what uh, America is, is showcased to be, um, it, at least in her best moments. Um, sometimes we struggle to to return to those ideas, but uh, I think at, at the end of the day, America still very much is that idea. I love that you made the distinction between unification versus you know just simply consolidation or centralization, and and it makes me wonder, Caleb. I have to wonder. If there is some common ground where we could still 
find that voluntary unification today? I'm not seeing much, but I'm certainly looking around for it. I suspect you are too. Yeah, I think there is. You know, I, I think that the past few years has um, has has really opened the eyes of a lot of people um, and has, has really forced people to to look at sort of the, the dark underbelly of of uh, of our current political process. Um, and it has ended up in, in creating some very strange bedfellows, so to speak, uh, where you have people like your your Joe Rogans and your Jordan Petersons and like all these different people who weren't necessarily on the same side, uh, but all ended up at the same place. Uh, and they were like, you know, I, I'm just not going to go off. I'm, I'm not going to go with the rest of, of We got to stop here, else. Caleb. Unfortunately, we are up against the clock. I'll have a link to your uh, to your podcast. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Brian. This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'd like to take a moment here to thank Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah for being one of my sponsors. Very fortunate for anybody who lives in the vicinity of Southern Utah because if you're looking for the very best in sewing machines, and I'm talking from entry level up to the really top-of-the-line machines, yeah, they've got them all there. They sell them. They service them. Here's something that I think is really cool. They will actually train you how to use the machine that you buy from them, like free classes. How about that? You not only get a very useful tool, but you get training in how to use it. And, of course, they can service what they sell long after the fact. I mean, this business has been in in, uh, operation since 1984. And the original owner actually still is one of the technicians who works and services these machines. That's sewingandquiltingcenter.com. There's a link in my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. mean a lot to me if you would do some business with them. So thank you in advance. Okay, here's a news story that has been causing me growing concern, probably due to the fact that I have a daughter who right at this moment is uh, is waiting to go into labor. But it's the growing baby formula shortage. Now, my daughter is actually in Germany, so they've, they've got some bigger problems than just, you know, hey, we can't find baby formula. They can't find cooking oil. Gas is terribly expensive. Electricity is terribly expensive. Oh, yeah, and then World War Three is kicking off just a couple of countries over, so... Yeah, they've got some challenges, but when I read about this baby formula shortage, I realize this is causing some very real concern, and I don't mean just in far-flung parts of the country. I mean all over the U.S. Parents with new kids, new babies, are really starting to get concerned that they can't find formula, and some kids, you know, they need it. Got an article here by uh, Lara Rosen-Cohen. This is from the Brownstone Institute. The baby formula shortage is serious. She says, before I had kids, I thought that breastfeeding was the most natural thing in the world and that it was something that mothers just instantly knew how to do perfectly once the baby was born. So she says, I would sit with my calm little cherubic cherubic pink baby at breast, marveling at myself at the very thought of feeding my precious little one from my own wonderful breast milk. What a wonderful, natural and serene breastfeeding goddess I would be. Of that, I was sure. But she says that was one of the that was one of the first of many, many things I was completely wrong about when I became a parent. 
thinking I would be able to learn how to play the guitar and learn Spanish on my first maternity leave were some of the other things I can't believe I thought I could do while taking care of a baby. She says it somehow completely did not compute that taking care of the newborn was pretty much the only thing that I would be doing or could possibly be doing 24-7. I had no concept of how a precious tiny little newborn could wipe out two newbie parents so easily and for so many weeks and no clue how hard physically and emotionally draining breastfeeding could be. Yes, it was convenient and free, but she says nobody told me about engorgement, nobody told me about cracked nipples or how exhausting a newborn's two-hour feeding cycle would be. So she says, I breastfed for a number of months and I'm proud of doing so, but then I started supplementing with formula. Now, many women cannot breastfeed for myriad reasons. Shaming them is particularly repugnant. She says, my kids are older now, but I've been thrown back into thinking about feeding hungry infants and toddlers because of the acute baby formula shortage that's hitting North America right now. And nobody in any position of leadership in America or Canada is actually talking about this horrifying situation. At least in the case of America, they're too busy looting the treasury and sending $40 billion of aid to their friends slash clients in uh, Ukraine. She says, the only people I see talking about it are mothers frantically searching pharmacies and online delivery services hours from their home, placing online order after order only to be told their orders cannot be filled. This is 2022. Why are American toddlers and babies at risk of starving? Where are our leaders? What's going on? Well, the Wall Street Journal explains, quote, there are two reasons for the shortage. Supply chain issues caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm I'm sorry. I'm going to edit this because I'm fact checking here. Caused by the reaction to the COVID-19 pandemic. There we go. Have made baby formula harder to find for months. The shortage worsened after Abbott Laboratories, a major formula manufacturer, voluntarily recalled some products and closed a plant where the products were made in Sturgis, Michigan. The Food and Drug Administration is investigating consumer complaints related to four infants who were hospitalized, two of whom died. A fifth complaint was also filed, but the FDA said there wasn't enough information available to definitively link the illness to the recalled formula. The agency said Chronobacter saka. Zaki, a germ that can be deadly in infants, was detected in the Sturgis plant, but not in the products. The FDA said in a statement that findings during its inspection raised concerns that powdered formula made at the Sturgis plant carried a risk of contamination. End quote. So, there we go. Lockdowns again. The actions without precedent broke what we previously believed to be unbreakable, and we're still feeling the effects. Nor is it surprising to see the FDA's regulatory hands are mixed up in this, regardless of whether or not the recall was justified or not. So it's, it's just not enough to blame supply chains or to assure parents that formula-producing factories are working 24-hour shifts to try to fill demand. 40% of America's baby formula is out of stock. This is actually an emergency situation. And it's not just an American problem either. This is affecting Canadian families as well. This is a real health crisis, and we know why it happened, but why aren't more people talking about it and doing something about it? Why isn't any politician or company stepping up for North American babies? She says, I'm sorry, Biden administration, we're working on it, just isn't good enough. American airwaves have been burning up over the past several weeks in the wake of the Supreme Court leak on Roe v. Wade. Politicians on both sides of the aisle are everywhere talking about abortion, 
And while both sides of the abortion debate churn out articles, demonstrate, put out social media posts like there's no tomorrow, and fundraise for their cause, there are living North American babies that we all need to be worried about right now. This shouldn't be a left-wing or right-wing thing. This shouldn't be Democrat versus Republican thing. Left-wingers and right-wingers all have babies and toddlers, and those babies, grandchildren of those of the political left and right, will be starving soon if our leadership doesn't get its act together. She says, for the past two years, our government's demonstrated their extraordinary powers and their willingness and eagerness to flex their extraordinary muscle under the guise of health policy and fighting COVID. So they mobilized national and international bureaucracies and agencies, increased surveillance, encouraged unprecedented censorship, ramped up vaccine development and manufacturing, curbed our free speech, our mobility rights, our right to assemble, our right to practice our religion, and our right to dissent. So there's no shortage of political power on this continent. Oddly, for the most righteous cause of instant hunger and starvation, there is no political will. This is the astonishing reality, and it's anti-human and terrifying. Laura Rosen-Cohen says, You would think that in an allegedly civilized society that babies and toddlers going hungry right in our backyards would be a nonpartisan issue and a societal priority. Sadly, she says, if you thought that, you'd be wrong. Babies don't know how you voted. They just need us now. And she says, Woe unto us and pity the children. I'm not trying to fan flames of panic here. I'm not trying to get you, you know, into, you know, emergency mode right now. But this is a huge concern. And I think the concern, at least on my part, stems from the fact that, you know, it's a, it's a, something that we're aware of. It's an inconvenience right now. But, you know, as far as I know, there aren't kids that are like actively being taken to the hospital. We can't get this kid to take nutrition. They're not putting on any weight. I think the the widespread effects are still pretty minimal at this point, but they could quickly grow. And that leaves us the question, what do we do about it? You know what's interesting? Talking with a friend, uh, this, this friend's mom apparently bought up a bunch of baby formula a couple of months ago, recognizing that they were having trouble keeping it in stock. She didn't have any babies to feed, but she bought a pretty good supply of it for parents who need it. And I know some people are thinking, yeah, she probably just got it so she could turn around and sell it at a higher price and gouge those people good. No. She got it because, I don't know how to put it, maybe she was listening to the whispering of the, the Holy Spirit or something that said, you need to buy these. This could come in handy for someone. Well, guess what? It is coming in handy. And she's helping people who desperately need to find baby formula. So all I'm going to suggest is if you have neighbors particularly that have a newborn infant. You're out and about shopping, and you notice, oh, look, there's, there's baby formula. Maybe give a quick call to your neighbor and ask them, hey, is there a particular brand or a particular kind that you need? I know kids can be sensitive to, to various brands, but keep an eye out for your neighbors with tiny children. If you see baby formula in stock, I'm not saying buy it all up and, you know, make sure nobody else gets it. I'm just saying... Grab a can or two and be prepared to be the person who has that uh, resource when somebody close to you is in need. Might not be a bad idea to do the same thing with wipes, with diapers, and things like that. I, I realize how apocalyptic that sounds, and yet I'm really just talking about 
be a good neighbor. Is that really that apocalyptic? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, since I've been talking about uh, preparedness a little bit, I'm going to go ahead and just drop a very shameless plug for lifesavingfood.com. Kendall at lifesavingfood.com has been one of my sponsors now for some time. I'm very grateful to have a food storage company as one of my sponsors. Number one, because I really do believe that that uh, storing up food for a rainy day or a rainy few years, as the case may be, uh, is probably a good idea. Nothing that's going on right now in terms of our, our current events has uh, persuaded me that, man, what a waste of time that was. Huh. Wish I'd have never spent any money on food storage or I wish I'd never put anything aside. No, actually, I'm looking around at the people who have prepared and thinking, that was really smart. <laughs> I'm glad we did that. But if you're just getting started, I understand it can be very overwhelming. It can be almost uh, almost impossible. You'll be paralyzed by this, just the enormity of what do we need? How do we put it all together? Lifesavingfood.com makes this pretty easy. Just go to their website. Look, starting big, starting small. Even if you're just looking for preparedness items or emergency preparedness um, things, you know, how to cook with solar power, things like that, they can help you. But you'll never know till you click on the link, lifesavingfood.com. So while we're on the subject of supply chain disruptions, I'd like to share an article with you from Justin Hart. This, too, was published on the Brownstone Institute's uh, website, brownstone.org, reminding us that the shortage the supply chain crisis, rather, has a cause. And this is how Justin Hart puts it. He says, there is no Cliff Notes version of why we're experiencing these supply chain issues across the world. A host of influences have combined to create a massive disruption to everyday life and the things we buy to sustain it. Primarily, however, the problem traces to the shutdowns from more than two years ago, which created unanticipated shortages that will likely get worse. Baby formula is one of those things. In fact, his wife, Jenny, was recently on Fox News discussing the supply and how it impacts us. Now, Jenny wrote about her experience on The Federalist, and he says she notes that the Biden administration has been almost totally silent on this issue. Her article, by the way, is titled, My Baby Needs Formula, and I'm Scared She Won't Have It. Now, Think about this. Take the infamous toilet paper runs of the last two years. When it comes to toilet paper, he says, after talking to a few people in the know, I came to realize the obvious. People do half of their business at their businesses. The distribution of toilet paper for commercial developments involves industrial production of the paper we've come to love. Not necessarily your soothing bear mascot quality, but... Rather efficient, large quantities packaged into large reams, which janitorial staff then mount in stalls in massive dispensers or efficient gizmos holding multiple rolls. Now, imagine you're an executive down at the fictitious TP supplier, Wipe World. The call comes in for the shutdown and you have some serious decisions to make. Production managers at the Big Roll Mill, your supplier for industrial reams of TP, have shut down and will eventually furlough most of the staff. Your shipping contracts will go into default. Trucks with slabs of TP rolls tightly wrapped and ready to be dispensed will be called back or maybe even mothballed. 
the proverbial target of your product is about to hit the fan. Now, on the other side, it turns out, uh, on the plus side, rather, it turns out that the, the profits on the consumer side of Wipe World are going to be just fine as demand outstrips supply. You stand to make a good profit if you can shift manufacturing to meet the new demand. The marketing team is way ahead of you in pitching a product called Wipe Forever, which comes with a freestanding mount promising you an entire month's supply of TP in one massive roll. Essentially, you repackage the industrial stock into a consumer-friendly motif. Google Charmin forever if you think I'm kidding. Problem solved for now. But he says the TP shortages went on for months and would come back again and again throughout the next two years. But the impact of the plumbing of the world doesn't stop there. Michael Hurtado has spent most of his time during the pandemic flushing toilets and running water at the large Ahern property off the Vegas Strip. The fear was that as rooms would stand empty, the water in the toilets and sinks would form bacteria and spread another set of nasty bugs when reopened. Now, the same scene would play out across every business building, theme park, and college dorm. Engineers and janitors, the essential workers, spent their days tending the loo, mining the sinks and showers on every floor in the building, and they did this not only to avoid the impact of stagnated water, but to keep the plumbing going at all. Every hotel, park, skyscraper, and business office is designed with an anticipated amount of water flowing throughout the infrastructure. If and when that water stops, it can cause damage to, serious damage to an entire city's waterworks. And what's more, those pipes and sewage heroes had to deal with another blow from the domestic side of the equation. In some municipal locales, clogs were up 50% as germ-worried households, in other words, all of us in March 2020, amped up their cleaning habits and occasionally flushed those ever-present hand wipes down the john. That practice doesn't end well. So a, ma- a national shutdown leads to a run on toilet paper causing or caused by a sudden drop in at-work use of it, leading to massive manufacturing rework, rework, supply chain shifts, and janitorial staff forced to walk the halls of vacated buildings like Jack Torrance from The Shining, simulating a proxy population doing their business to keep everything from falling apart. All work and no flushing makes Michael Hurtado a very dull boy. Now it's baby formula. And this is just the beginning. He says, stay tuned. Again, this is from Justin Hart. Now, again, I'm not sharing this with you because, uh, hey, you're, you're not looking very panicked. Are you living in a state of fear? You should be. I don't want you to live in a state of fear. I want you to actually... Look at the situation, assess it for what it is, and then take whatever steps you can to mitigate the risk to you and yours. And if you're feeling, you know, particularly blessed, like, you know, if you've if you have prospered, maybe take some steps not only to take care of you and yours, but have a little extra on hand to help your neighbors. You realize I'm talking about more than just baby formula or toilet paper. I'm talking about all the different little necessities of life. It's time to play the what-if game. What if, you know, we couldn't just run down to the store and get what we wanted on a whim? Most of us can't imagine anything like that, and yet I think we're going to get the chance to experience this more likely sooner than later. And I think the people who do address this now, while there's still plenty of food on the shelves, still plenty of supplies, and and, uh, for the most part, there's still a lot of availability of these things, they're going to be very grateful that they did. All right.
That's the scary part. Can I share something kind of fun with you? Came across this song. I'm only going to play a portion of it because I'm sure the algorithms will want to sniff it out and and mute my show for sharing this with you. But uh, this is kind of an interesting little song called Keep Your Rifle By Your Side. And the more I listen to it, the catchier it becomes. Check this thing out for yourself. I bet that's making some people's blood pressure spike. Yeah, just wait till it becomes the national anthem of Heartland, right? <laughs> it's a catchy tune. Here's the really funny thing about this was uh, um, the group that made this, I think it's Ubisoft, they disabled the YouTube comments on this on this song. It's a, it's a perfectly cromulent song, if we can make up a word there, but they just don't want to admit it. <laughs> and I don't, I don't know the background of it. I just know it's very catchy. The more I listen to it, the more I'm like, hey, that's, uh, that's actually not bad at all. So I'll recommend it for you if you want to, you know, if you want to listen to it yourself and make your own mind. If it's okay, if you disagree, if you think that's really stupid. But I can't think of something that would upset not just the political class, but all the control freaks out there. What are you thinking about? Keep your rifle by your side. It's just, well, it's just kind of a reminder that, you know what, free people have the right to say no to things that uh, that are infringing upon their rights. And thank goodness for that Second Amendment, which uh, puts the teeth in that ability to say no and make it stick. Not wishing for conflict here, but I'm just very grateful that uh, this is one place where the American public hasn't yet lost its collective mind and knuckled under in, all right, everybody, turn them in. We're here to protect you. We're going to make sure that you're safe. I'd start out like Nancy Reagan and just say, well, actually, Nancy Reagan wasn't polite enough to say no thanks. From there, it goes to Nancy Reagan, no. And if if it ever gets to hell no, yeah, I'm not sure I want to be standing there when that goes on. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, I'm not trying to do much here. It's not like I have all the answers to the world's problems, but one of the big problems I perceive is that a good number of people are in mental slavery. And I'm not saying that to be derogatory. We've all been in mental slavery to some degree or another. 
My goal is to help to persuade people to take off those chains, think as clearly and independently as possible, and go after the truth like a bloodhound on the trail of an escaped convict. Maybe that's a bad metaphor to use. I'm sorry. (laughs) But nonetheless, better to think for yourself, to be your own fact checker, than to let somebody else do it for you, to outsource your thinking to highly paid and blow-dried spinmeisters who are there only to tell you what the people in power would want you to know. So that being said, welcome to the show. Our program is brought to you by Dixie Chiropractic. You can go to DixieChiro.com to visit their website. Three people in particular that I would love to hear this message, and that is anyone suffering from car accident injuries, Dixie Chiropractic can help you. If you have bulging herniated discs, check out their $99 intro special, two treatments plus massage. If you have neuropathy, here's the $99 Calmare treatment plus massage. You can get all the details at DixieChiro.com. Well, not many people understand monetary policy much less the monetary system. And, and I bring this up because there's a sense that we are about to experience some very dramatic changes in monetary policy and perhaps even in the monetary system itself in the near future. What was I reading the other day? It was somewhere upwards of, I want to say it was, it was 90% of the world's governments, these countries are ready to introduce central bank digital currencies. And I know for those of you who are scriptorians, you know, and have read about the mark of the beast, no one shall buy or sell without the permission of the beast. You have to admit, you know, the Bible starts looking less and less like uh, some book of mythology and more and more like, whoa, wow, did that, did they warn us about this? I mean, is that, is it possible that this is what we're facing? Can't tell you for sure, but I'd say be very careful. Central bank digital currencies put a lot of control in the hands of the the system that that controls your money. Very easy to be on the receiving end of electronic fascism under such circumstances. But again, it comes back to the problem. Who understands the monetary system? The answer is very few people. Joaquin Book has an excellent article in BitcoinMagazine.com. Nobody understands the monetary system. And he starts with a quote from Carl Sagan. If you want to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first invent the universe. Now, Joaquin Book says, among the first objections that arise for anyone who's just learned about Bitcoin is, this is too complicated to understand. And it's true. Private keys, block times, difficulty adjustments, UTXOs, uncensorable coin join transactions, hash something. The learning curve is steep, and for most the reasons to ascend, it seem few and far between. Now, he says, the first time I was introduced to Bitcoin in practice, not in theory, Techno-babbling libertarians had unsuccessfully pitched me the idea for years. He says the intimidatingly tech-savvy guy who did so botched the process. First, he had me download some shady-looking app, which I didn't have space for on my phone, so ironically, I had to remove a few podcasts on monetary economics. Second, he had the app generate some random words, and in the absence of pen and paper, had me type them into my phone's cloud-saved note-taking app. Third, he tried to send me 100,000 sats, but the spotty internet on his phone kept interrupting the process. Now, clearly, Joaquin Book says, I wouldn't become a a convinced Bitcoiner that evening. The hardships of the process seemed altogether useless. The cure, worse than the central banking disease it supposedly tried to solve. 
But after he'd gotten his stuff together, and he says, my polite patience having run out about a half dozen times, he finally managed to send the stats and triumphantly expressed, see, see, this transaction without happened without anybody knowing, and nobody could stop it. Now, Joaquin Book says, not impressed, I pulled out a $5 bill, handed it to him, and mockingly imitated his triumph. See, see, that happened without anybody knowing, and nobody could stop us from doing it. Now, bearer assets are nothing new in the history of money. And all he had convinced me of was that Bitcoin was some complicated digital way of doing that. But if the tech raptured can't effortlessly do it, what hope is there for you and me? And you're disintermediating a banking system, the purpose of which is to efficiently and securely make payments, make lending and borrowing possible. Nobody was trying to stop anybody's payments. What was this guy on about? He says, it would be years before I would see the troubles of the current fiat payment networks. Now, what's amazing about Bitcoin, he writes, is that it's not digital. On the Bitcoin 2021 stage, Alex Gladstein wanted to illustrate the simplicity of using Bitcoin by sending sats in real time to Strike's fundraising campaign for Bitcoin development. It was eerily similar to the Bitcoin zealot I described above. So... Gladstein says, I'm on the strike page right here. I'm going to go ahead and donate, you know, $2 worth of Bitcoin to strike. It's going to go and it's gone. That's a bearer asset that's just instantly moved around the world and I didn't ask permission from anybody. Now, Joaquin Book says, okay, Gladstein succeeded much better in illustrating a lightning payment than the guy who first tried to send me Bitcoin all those years ago. Now, naturally, the audience whoaed and applauded, but the informed critic could have equally well have responded with, yes, and Venmo does that too. In an episode for Bitcoin Magazine podcast, Mark Mariah, let me try that again, Mariah, explained his approach to onboarding boomers, that demographic with money, time, and a healthy fear of government overreach, yet not exactly known for their advanced technological know-how. Mariah says, forget all the theory, pointing to everyday items like computers or iPhones. Do you honestly know how they work? He says, I have absolutely no clue, and adds crucially, that's okay. Now, his quip is nice and comforting. Nobody understands technology X, and that's fine, because we see what technology X does, and we can use it. Similarly, if you don't understand Bitcoin, that's still okay, except that it's not. He says, understanding what Bitcoin can do for you, its use case, requires you to understand the incumbent monetary system. Ah, now we've hit pay dirt. Unlike a phone, a car, or a computer... There is no visible value add in using Bitcoin for a middle-of-the-road Westerner who's never been sanctioned, never done anything illegal, never tried to buy goods or services that a payment processor or a government disapproves of, has their salaries and savings indexed to inflation, doesn't understand why recessions happen, and, on a government payroll at least, doesn't suffer from them, or what central banks do or where money comes from. Now, he says, I don't need to understand any of the underlying tech in a phone to see how I might use it and how it could assist my life. But in contrast, Bitcoin's value add is tied up with its compared to what alternative in the incumbent monetary system that 99% of us never think about, never cause us any payment-related troubles, and we consequently pay no attention to. By the way, he's got a great cartoon here to illustrate this point. Fish swimming past each other, and one of them says, How's the water? One of the other fish responds, What the hell is water? (laughs) That's a good point. Joaquin Book says a Visa card and Apple Pay can instantly pay for things halfway around the world, too. 
For international transfers, Wise or Revolut or a plethora of fintechs can now move bank money across the world in seconds. Tech is not the thing. Digital is not the value add. Now, of course, most Bitcoiners know that the Visa, Wise, Apple, Pay analogy is faulty. And he says, and my guy could have made uh, Safadian Amos's argument that uh, Bitcoin has saleability across space, which my $5 bill lacks. But to understand much of what sets Bitcoin apart, you need to go well into the monetary plumbing weeds. What happens when we make a bank payment? What is money? This is the reason I'm sharing this article with you, dear listener, because he does a great job of describing this and making the case for why it's in our interest. Even if you don't think, well, I'm not into finance other than, you know, I earn money and spend it and save it and, and what have you. You have to understand how our monetary system currently works to understand why it's so flawed. Now, Joaquin Book says international transfers or bank-issued visa cards require identification in a way Bitcoin doesn't. They don't provide final settlement. In other words, payments can be revoked later. Bank transfers are often deferred net settlements through real-time gross settlement payments, uh, though real-time gross settlement payments are often rolled out in uh, more and more bank central payment networks. Funds in Venmo or PayPal or other lower layers of the dollar banking system are permissioned in the sense that any of the half-dozen entities required for a payment to be successful could block it for innocent technical reasons or for more malign control or authoritarian reasons. I got to tap the brakes here, but we're going to come back on the other side of the break and talk a little bit more about why nobody understands the monetary system. Again, this is from Joaquin Book. I do have a link to this article in today's show notes. You can access them at thebrianhideshow.com. By the way, if you find value in these notes, if it gives you good reading material, stuff that actually improves your understanding of the world around you, consider subscribing. I'll put them in your email inbox each day. All you have to do is click on the big subscribe button at the bottom of the show notes page. I'll take care of the rest. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, let's uh, let's dive into another fun topic here. I know I've talked about the film 2,000 Mules. I've seen a lot of people complaining, well, I don't want to have to pay 30 bucks in order to watch this film. I, I have looked high and low. I can't remember. I was reading an article about it, and I, I, I want to say it was the one from Andrea Widberg that was published in my show notes a couple of days ago. But it seems like I found a free link. I watched the, the film without having to pay for it. Hope that doesn't mean I was pirating it, but um, strongly recommend 2,000 Mules. That's a documentary that's worth your time. But before you believe anybody either for or against the documentary, I'm telling you, you really should watch it for yourself because the fact checkers are just, well, let's just say they're out there in, in full force trying to blunt whatever little awareness there is. And by the way, Fox News is among those that's kind of, well, we don't really want to talk about this. I'm not saying that, oh, they've been they've been compromised, but I'm just suggesting that this has some people spooked. And I don't think it's because 2,000 Mules is just peddling some myth that uh, you know can't possibly be true. Got an article here from Jonathan Mosley. This is from AmericanThinker.com. 
Fact Checker Fail, 2,000 Mules versus the Media. Jonathan Mosley says, in a familiar pattern, left-wing fact-checkers furiously try to hide the damning proof of election fraud in the 2020 election, presented in Dinesh D'Souza's documentary, 2,000 Mules. But those fake-checkers clearly did not actually watch the film. He recommends you can see Ali Swenson, Associated Press, reprinted at U.S. News and World Report, or at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. So initially, he says, you should note that 2,000 Mules is not... A western. It refers to the criminal. I'm sorry. It refers to the term developed years ago of drug mules who carry illegal drugs for criminal cartels, such as smuggling drugs across the border. With 2,000 mules, the leftists desperate to hide voter fraud clearly only watched the free trailer for the movie and didn't spring for the 20 to 29 dollars to actually see the entire film. Now, the film can be purchased from the Salem Radio Network from Dinesh D'Souza on locals or at the main website. He has links to all of those in his story. After mainstream journalists became discredited as biased left-wing propagandists, very suddenly a new fad sprang up. Fact-checkers. Now, the same journalists whom we stopped believing in the normal news are suddenly believable because they call themselves fact-checkers. But he says if there's anything that that presumably a fact-checker would do, you would think it would be to carefully read and analyze a claim point by point to determine its truth. Typically, fact-checkers specialize in being distracted by a minor detail. So, for example, a news story might report that Senator No Good smashed into a green-colored van full of nuns while driving drunk. And the fact-checker would then spend pages discussing how there's no evidence the van was colored green. The van might have been blue, so rating false. There's another word for this. It's called sophistry. I want to read some of the stuff that Plato had to say about the sophists and their their ability to twist the truth and to make things sound plausible that, that really weren't. Now, back to the article. In this case, Jonathan Mosley says that True the Vote did what the government failed to do. The organization purchased through commercial brokers the cell phone geotracking or geolocator data from specific cities in specific states where the election was decided. And then they analyzed the GPS data to show the paid mules who visited left-wing nonprofit organizations and then drove to many different ballot drop boxes on the same day. Then did it all over again the following day, day after day, for weeks. Now, while ballot harvesting is illegal in the states sampled, one is allowed to deliver ballots from family members or a voter for whom one is officially designated a caregiver. But otherwise, it's considered a crime to drop off someone else's ballots in an election drop box. But under no circumstances would one legally or legitimately do that again and again, day after day, for weeks or months. Now, the fake checkers discuss the data as if these mules only made one trip on one day to only one drop box location. They didn't watch the film. The film explains that the analysis filtered out people who were driving past drop boxes or whose routines did not fit a voter fraud hypothesis. Only those driving straight up to a drop box carrying their cell phones were included. Now, the analysis is considered the pattern of life routines of cell phone. They they considered the pattern of life routines of cell phone users. Those going to work or shop near a drop box would be excluded as opposed to those who spent only a few minutes at the drop box and then immediately turned around and drove on to the next drop box location. A person parked for a long time for an appointment or shopping, well, they would be excluded. 
Now, the fact checkers also skip over the fact that by uh, Jonathan Mosley's rough exit uh, estimate, rather, perhaps around 10 percent of those mules active during the election season were also located in the middle of violent Antifa riots during the year 2000. Huh. What an amazing coincidence. Jonathan Mosley says the documentary carefully explains how they filtered out the possibility of anyone dropping off ballots for his family. Only mules who visited 10 or more ballot drop boxes were included in the analysis. For example, one mule visited drop boxes in six different counties. Now, ballots are different for different counties, congressional districts, and state legislative districts. So no one dropping off legitimate ballots would go to drop boxes in six different counties. Someone dropping off grandma's ballot would not visit 10 to 100 different drop boxes and then do this over again the next day and the next and the next. The fact, hacker, the fact checkers rather tell us that geo-tracking is not that accurate. Well, oddly, the FBI is using is prosecuting a peaceful, uh, nonviolent protesters from January 6, 2021, based on that same imprecise geo-tracking data, allegedly showing people inside the U.S. Capitol. Whoops, never mind. So geo-tracking cell phone locations is precise, except when it isn't. Depends on the needs at the moment. But it doesn't actually matter because True the Vote sets such a high bar that the data cannot be dismissed. Only those mules who visited left-wing election-related nonprofit offices and then went from there straight to election drop boxes were included. The film repeatedly explains how they obtained over 4 million minutes of official government surveillance video viewing the ballot drop boxes promiscuously deployed due to COVID-19. The trailer shows only a few snippets out of 4 million minutes. Even the documentary barely scratches the surface of that ocean of data. Yet the fact checkers analyze the surveillance videos as if the few examples shown are the only surveillance videos. That is, they dismiss the examples shown only in the movie trailer. Had they actually watched the documentary, they would have known that the same mules are showing up again and again in various surveillance videos at different drop boxes all over the city, not just once, as in the movie trailer. The four million minutes of video show mules stuffing dozens of ballots into drop boxes, not two or three. Often we see ballots falling all over the sidewalk. The governmental surveillance video sometimes shows 20 or 30 ballots at a time getting stuffed into boxes already full. The surveillance videos repeatedly show mules taking photographs of themselves, putting the ballots into the drop boxes, or just photos of the drop box itself. The only reason to take photographs of the drop boxes is that the mules are being paid and are presenting proof that they delivered the illicit ballots. Oh, and not to mention this is often happening between 1 a.m. and 4 a.m. The surveillance videos show the mules wearing surgical gloves, as they stuff illicit ballots into the drop boxes, then they remove the surgical gloves and toss them into nearby trash cans, all caught on government surveillance videos. The film explains that this started the day after ballot harvesters were arrested in one state based on fingerprints on the ballots. In one case, a woman never looks at the trash can until after taking off her gloves, indicating she had done it before at the same location. Finally, True the Vote concentrated only on specific cities or areas within the battleground states that decided the 2020 presidential election. The fact-checkers are again off-base. D'Souza's excellent documentary is a call for honest law enforcement, if there are any left, to conduct a full analysis of the entire country. There is one indisputable conclusion. This must be investigated 
in full. Again, I agree with this, but then again, I've watched the documentary. I'm encouraging you, watch the documentary and decide for yourself. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Shout out here to HSLAmmo.com. I'm talking high quality, new and remanufactured ammunition. Made by my good friend Spencer Worthington and his top-notch team at HSLAmmo.com. I know that ammo's been kind of a tricky thing to find from time to time. You know, supply chain shutdowns are affecting everybody, but uh, Spencer has managed to keep it together, keep it going, and uh, it would be a great place to start if you are in the market for some ammo. Go to HSLAmmo.com. See if they can meet your needs. I'd appreciate you doing business with one of my sponsors. You'd be helping support a great business that does a lot of good within southern Utah if you did. Well, if you think the housing crisis is bad right now, just wait until our friends in the political class step up to fix the problem. Got an article here from Mark C. Ross exploring what happens when our housing bubble collapses. What happens after it collapses? He says, Stephen Moore just published a good article forecasting a repeat of the 2008 collapse of the housing market. Political meddling in what should be a free and fair market is likely to lead to a deja vu financial crisis. As if we weren't wallowing in one now. The point is that the fiends in D.C. are poised to make things worse. Now, he says, having been a licensed real estate agent since 1995, I have some inside eyewitness experience on the subject. Mark Ross says, primarily bubbles are supposed to pop. Financial trends tend to have momentum, which often leads to overshooting the reality of the market. At the tail end of a seller's real estate market, new listings tend to go on overpriced. Now, this is because analyses of comparable sales will often be extrapolated using the known appreciation trend, which has already run its course. This is typically manifest as an increase in the days-on-market statistic. A veteran agent, he says, once told me that there can never be anything wrong with a property that lowering the price cannot fix. Now, the political motive for screwing up the real estate market derives from a knee-jerk tendency to pander to the inner-city minority population. They want to have more home ownership among the less creditworthy. Thomas Sowell, in The Vision of the Anointed, puts forth a really inconvenient fact. Prior to the Community Reinvestment Act, inner-city minority homeowners had exactly the same foreclosure rate as white folks. The point being that traditional underwriting criteria were colorblind. But that didn't stop the demagogues, now did it? Nowadays, there's scuttlebutt going around about the federalization of real estate appraisal. After all, there's still not adequate minority homeownership, and the appraised values deserve to be tweaked in order to balance the equation. Now, how people house themselves has evolved over the years. Technology has had a major impact. The Second World War stimulated the development of really efficient building techniques that, in the post-war period, led to sprawling subdivisions. Prior to that, the automobile allowed for a rise in suburban development, where horse barns morphed into garages. Economics has also influenced the process. He says, first came the 20-year mortgage that reduced the monthly nut that homeowners must face. Eventually, this led to the 30-year note. 
High interest rates spawned the adjustable mortgage so that borrowers could automatically take advantage of lowered rates once they'd passed their peak. Also came condominiums where individual apartments could be bought outright. Now, these are often in particularly desirable locations where the cost of the dirt under the building is distributed over the many units. The latest trend for homeowners is to add an accessory dwelling unit, or ADU, to their property. During World War II, for instance, places such as the Bay Area had a tremendous influx of new residents who came to work in war-related industries. In-law units provided the necessary infilling as building codes were relaxed due to the obvious national emergency. Nowadays, ADUs are filling a similar need. There are even companies that install prefab units in order to hasten the process. Now, from the standpoint of a prospective home buyer in today's price environment, there's an interesting there's an interesting option. Tendency or tenancy rather in common or TIC allows for the financial combination of multiple households. So houses with ADUs or even duplexes, triplexes, etc., can be more easily bought when the purchasing power of two or more families is combined. The participation doesn't have to be anywhere near equal. This technique has been used for years where local authorities are reluctant to allow for condo conversion. Now, there is a catch. Tenants in common cannot escape mutual responsibility for all expenses. That means mortgage, taxes, insurance, and maintenance. The solution to this is fairly obvious. The multiple households should already be either good friends or close relatives. He says, like politics, according, as according to the late Tip O'Neill, all real estate markets are local. The main driver of demand is local job creation. Over time, the intense necessity of having a home has facilitated all kinds of innovation and adaptation. So again, this is an article from Mark C. Ross, What Happens After Our Housing Bubble Collapses. And I don't mean to sound, look, I, I don't wish ill on anybody financially. But I know that uh, for my family, we are very much looking forward to the collapse of the uh, housing bubble. I don't know when that's going to happen, because right now there are still people moving from uh, more... Uh, how can I put this nicely? From less free states to freer states. That's that's as nice as I can put it. But the demand for housing from all the people flowing into states like Utah or Idaho or even Wyoming, for that matter, Montana, it's in, insane. And it drives the housing prices up because of the demand to the point that, uh, man, I can qualify to get a decent home but I don't want to be house poor for the rest of my life. In other words, I don't want to buy at the top of the market. So, you know, again, I don't, I don't want to see anybody else uh, suffer, but I'm saving my pennies and my dimes and I'm, you know, just socking away the best down payment that I can find until such time as there is a correction in the market. And uh, I remember very well what happened in 2008 and 2009. You remember that when you could fog a mirror? Okay, you qualify for the loan. Here you go. Knock yourself out. I just recall that uh, what followed after that economic correction was that there were a lot of homes that came on the market, and some of them were distressed properties. They were, you know, fire sale prices. That's what I'm waiting for. Now, if that sounds really unethical or opportunistic, I don't know what to tell you. 
I think there's a right time to buy and there's uh, there's a right time not to buy. Top of the market, I don't want to do it. And, I, and I'm not joking when I tell you, you know, there's, oh, what was my wife telling me about? One of her fellow teachers was, was looking for a home in a really desirable part of southern Idaho, the Hagerman Valley, which if you've never been there, it's beautiful. It's it's the banana belt of southern Idaho. It's always 10 degrees warmer in Hagerman. It's always just fertile soil, and the river runs right through there. There's wildlife by the millions and fish everywhere and recreational opportunities. What's not to love? But demand is very high. And so a single-wide trailer sitting on, I don't know how much land it was, maybe a half acre, $180,000. And it was not in good shape. It's not like, hey, that's a pretty nice trailer, and look at the land it's sitting on. It's 180000 bucks. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, you know, you could have picked up something like that for well under, you know, $100,000. You get into, you know, the, the neighborhoods, the press board estates, you know, where three-bedroom, two-bath homes that have been around for 50 years, they're selling well north of three hundred fifty, four hundred thousand dollars $400,000. And it's even worse in many places in Utah, in St. George, Utah. I believe that that's one of the... Um, I think the median house price now is well over $500,000. Now, granted, there's a lot of new construction there, but holy moly. What happens? <laughs> what what happens when uh, when we start trying to, uh, to, to buy a home without uh, being absolutely, you know, poor because so much of your income is going to just paying for that roof over your head? Well, I hope we see relief soon. But, uh, you know, we have a lot of irons in the fire. There's a lot of problems that are kind of coalescing at this time. BlackRock, you know, what's up with them buying all up, buying up all of these houses? And, you know, it's there's there's a very interesting transfer of wealth that's taking place right now. And when I say wealth, I'm not talking about just money in the bank. Wealth is everything that remains when your cash flow stops. In other words, it's what you actually own. When you start looking at it that way, it's like, hmm, that would be real property. That would be things like homes. That would be things like land, especially farmable land. We haven't even touched on, you know, what's happening, you know, in terms of uh, why can't farmers get fertilizer? Why is it uh, getting so difficult for them to, to grow and, and perhaps even to, uh, to ship their crops once they are grown? Cost of diesel keeps going up. Sorry, I, I feel like I'm complaining. Anyway, I hope the article sheds a little bit of light on uh, the housing bubble and what to expect when it collapses. Mark Ross, I'll have a link to his article in my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Stick around. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Thanks for sticking with me. I really try very hard every day not to just, you know, give you scary things to wrestle with, but to give you some idea of what's going on in the world, what we should be paying attention to, and hopefully, you know, structuring our our lives and the way that we uh, respond to these challenges, you know, in order to, to just... 
to be able to stand on our own as much as possible. Now, I'm about to dive into a topic where we really don't have that option. And that, of course, is the topic of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And I'm going to risk angering some people here because right now, uh, war fever is very, very strong. More so in Washington, D.C., perhaps, than out here in the hinterlands. But the bottom line is there's, there's a great deal of propaganda. There's a great deal of media influence that is being directed at us. And if you don't preface whatever you say about the conflict over in Ukraine with how evil Russia is, uh, Putin is latest Hitler, blah, 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 the the unprovoked attack. You know, If you don't say the right talking points, people are going to automatically be like, hey, what are you talking about here? So I'm going to poke a hole or two in the uh, the narrative. And if that makes you angry, well, I can't help you there other than to say, just be really careful with the information that's coming out. By the way, for those who are looking for good, credible information about the military operations that are actually taking place in Ukraine, and I'm talking not, you know, from uh, Russia State News, but actually from a, an interested observer, moonofalabama.org, moonofalabama.org. I don't know what this person's military background is. Clearly, they have, um, you know, they they have military service in their background, but um, it's it's pretty amazing to read the accounts and the news stories that they share from various media sources all over the world compared to U.S. press releases on, you know, well, here's what's happening and the way that social media and all the other narrative managers are trying to spin this. Well, you know, of course, Russia is losing and losing badly, you know, and it's... It's very sobering, and and none of this is to minimize the suffering of all the people caught in the middle. But again, if you're somebody who's interested in getting a a good, clear view of things, moonofalabama.org is a very good place to start. Let's talk, though, about the $40 billion gift from Congress to Ukraine, right? Hey, we can't find baby formula for our kids, but uh, never mind that, folks. Congress would like to send $40 billion in aid to Ukraine. Mentioned this in the other hour of the show, but that sure sounds a lot like looting the treasury to the point where they know the ship is going down and these uh, congressional leaders are just doing everything they can to, to get as much money out of the system as they can before it collapses. I know that's a bright and cheery point of view, but I wouldn't put it past them. And we've got the U.S. actively trying to provoke Russia to attack NATO. This, to me, is, is the greatest insanity of all. How are we going to get Russia to lash out? And who knows? Maybe they'll start lobbing some nukes at us. I don't know. At any rate, I don't think provoking a nuclear power is uh, is necessarily the way to go. And, and some would say, well, Brian, that's just cowardice then to turn away from. Is it really? I mean, do, do you really understand the dynamic behind why Russia chose to invade Ukraine? Because at the risk of sounding like one of Putin's shills, I'm not sure that they were, uh, I mean, look, it's it's a horrific, aggressive act. That part's got to be condemned. But at the same time, it's pretty clear that uh, things were being maneuvered to the point where it was a militarily intolerable situation for Russia. Let me just say this. The U.S. has invaded countries for a lot less than the reasons that uh, Russia has invaded Ukraine. Well, you can't compare those things, but I am comparing those things. 
Sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. I want to share with you an article from Eric Peters, Rising to the Bait Again. He says $40 billion is still a great deal of money, even in the Biden things America. Except it's not going to help Americans. Rather, the Biden thing has taken $40 billion out of the pockets of Americans to finance all but war with nuclear-armed Russia by arming and abetting Ukraine. When the government and the corporations that own the government want war, they usually get what they want. Eric says some 108 years ago, the government of Woodrow Wilson and the arms peddlers and financial interests behind Wilson wanted war with Germany, something few if any Americans wanted as they'd be the ones paying for it in blood and treasure. To drag them into what was then styled the war to end all wars, Wilson's government colluded with Britain's government and the interests that owned both of them to arrange a pretext. A passenger liner called the Lusitania was loaded with war material and provocatively sailed into the war zone. The Germans rose to the bait. A submarine fired a couple of more or more torpedoes into the Lusitania's flanks, and she quickly sank, resulting in the drowning of about 1,198 innocent civilians, which they were. But the governments of America and Britain weren't. They knew that by goading the Germans into sinking Lusitania, they could feign outrage and cause Americans to actually be outraged, sufficiently so as to drown out any voices who might raise a hand and ask why Lusitania, a passenger liner loaded with war material from America, meant to help Germany's foe in the war, was sailed into the war zone right in front of German subs. Instead, Americans were roused to bloodlust over the Hun and sent to die and kill in a war that was as relevant to them as a wall phone is to a millennial. Some 20 years after the war to end all wars, another war began. The government and corporate interests of the United States were once again extremely interested in getting Americans to fight in it, but chastened by the carnage of the prior war, few Americans were interested. How to fix that? Well, first, the same method was tried. All but declare war on Germany by all but formally allying America with allying America with Britain. Well, ally America's munitions industry and so on with Britain. Now, he says destroyers and other war material financed by Americans to protect America were lend least to Britain. A very provocative act as far as the Germans were concerned. American naval vessels helped British vessels track and hunt down German vessels, including the famous German battleship Bismarck, whose position during the course of its one and only sortie was relayed to the British who had lost track of her, helping them to eventually find and sink her. This time, however, the Germans did not rise to the bait. The government and corporate interests of the United States were stymied. The war with Germany would have to wait, but not for long the government and corporate interests of America were able to get Japan to rise to the bait, cut off her oil supply and present her with a fait accompli. Japan decided to attack, and it wasn't a sneak one either. Abundant evidence suggests the American government and the interests that owned it then and still own it knew what the Japanese were going to do. In any event, it was predictable what they would do. And he says, here we are again. The interests that run things want another war, possibly a nuclear one, for reasons that aren't fully known, but which can be broadly understood because they are always the same. A war would do what wars always do. In addition to killing people, it silences them, particularly as regards impolitic questions about what the government has been doing to them. Here are the post-war words of former uh, Germany's former Reichsmarschall Hermann Goring. Naturally, the people don't want war. 
neither in Russia nor in England nor in America nor, for that matter, in Germany. That is understood. But after all, it is the leaders of the country who determine the policy, and it is always a simple matter to drag the people along, whether it is a democracy or a fascist dictatorship or a parliament or communist dictatorship. Voice or no voice, the people can always be brought to the bidding of the leaders. That is easy. All you have to do is tell them that they are being attacked and denounce the pacifists for lack of patriotism and exposing the country to danger. It works the same way in any country. And as Eric Peters notes, it works very well. It appears to be working again, but while appearances can be deceiving, you know, there's, there is relative, there is rel- revelatory unanimity on the left and right for risking a nuclear war over Ukraine, at least in terms of the punditry apparatus of left and right. But do the people who will die as a result of this war, do they actually agree? Doesn't appear so, at least for now. But what if the interests that control the government manage to get the Russians to rise to the bait? How much more baiting will the Russians abide? And will Americans tolerate it, or will they be fooled by it if the bear takes the bait? That's a fair question, because they will certainly be the ones paying for it if he does. Now, I realize that uh, that flies in the face of the narrative, which is that, hey, we're the one in the white hat. We're the good guys. Whatever our leaders are doing to to stymie the evil Russian bear, it's got to be the right thing, even if we have to bend a few ethical or moral boundaries in order to do it. All I'm asking you to do is consider that maybe, just maybe, the narratives that we're being fed are as worked over as can be by the time they reach us. And maybe they don't really reflect reality. Again, it's never been more critical that you and I think clearly and independently and question everything. Thanks again for listening. This is The Brian Hyde Show.